This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. As the kids are making their way to their classes, I would invite you to grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one out of the pew. We are going to be reading from Luke chapter 19 this morning as we continue our walk through Luke. Luke chapter 19. If you're grabbing one of the pew Bibles, it is on page 1117. 1117. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, And surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Uh, If you have your Bibles open to Luke 19, that will be helpful as we're covering three sections. Um, of scripture sections I'm sure that you're, most of you are very familiar with. But just before we dive in, let's take a moment and pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we come humbly, eh, just 
acknowledging our need of enlightenment, our, our need to be taught through your word, through your spirit. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you have not remained silent, but that you have declared your will to us. We're thankful, oh Holy Spirit, for the conviction you bring, the instruction you bring, the empowerment you bring. We're thankful for the gift of Jesus. And we're thankful for the forgiveness of sins. We're thankful for your love, Father. Many of us in this room know our frailty. There are many who are physically ill. There are some who are struggling emotionally. And others, Lord, who are battling spiritually. And so, Lord, as we gather in this room, we recognize that we are in combat. And yet we also recognize that the victory has already been won. And so, Lord, we pray that our hope is set upon Christ and the victory of the empty tomb. We pray that we are empowered through your spirit to not just say pleasant things about Christianity, but to be doers of the word and not mere hearers. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us and guide us in this hour. Our prayer is that we would be more conformed to the image of Christ, our Savior, your Son. I pray, Lord, for my words that I would not say anything more or less than you've given me to say. But God, I pray that I would be faithful to your word. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. These three sections of Scripture, the triumphal entry, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, and the cleansing of the temple, are usually broken down and taught as separate. And yet, one of the unique things about Luke is the way that he ties them all together very clearly. By looking at these sections, we see one complete unit. And we're given an added blessing by looking at these, a blessing that my friend, who is long since deceased, but I have been warmed by his writing, B.B. Warfield says, and what he calls the emotional life of our Lord. What does B.B. Warfield mean when he talks of the emotional life of our Lord? He's talking about the emotions of Christ. See, as you look at the sections of Scripture that are before us, you see emotions on display. You see joy, you see sadness, and you see determination. Let's dig a little bit further with Warfield as he begins to explain this. He says, This idea of the emotional life of our Lord, it belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity. That he was subject to all sinless human emotions. In his humanity, Christ was subject to all sinless human emotions. What does that mean and how does that play out? As you begin to dig through this, you see people wrestling with how to deal with the humanity of Christ and his emotions. They're off in two extremes. Warfield begins to talk about one. He says, in the interest of dignity of Christ's person, that is to minimize, the, that's what people do. And yet there is also a tendency in the interest of the completeness of humanity to magnify. What he's basically saying is people will go to two extremes in dealing with the personhood of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. On one side, they will wrestle to minimize the emotional aspects of Christ so as to not make him 
less, whereas others will magnify it so that he seems more human. With both of these, there are tendencies. The one tendency may be to run the risk of giving us a somewhat cold and remote Jesus, someone who's not much like us. Yet the other is the possibility of the danger of offering to us a Jesus so crass and human scarcely commands our highest reverence, he says. See, the tension that many live in regarding Christ and his humanity, the aspects of his emotions. Yet as we look at our text before us, we see Jesus on display with perfect human emotions. We understand that Jesus is both divine and human. For his emotions prove his humanity and his sinlessness in those emotions prove his ability to be our savior. Friends, don't miss that this morning. The emotion of Christ proves his humanity, yet his sinlessness in those emotions proves his ability to be your savior. Finally, Warfield says this, for as we survey the emotional life of our Lord, let us not permit to slip out of sight that we are not only observing the proofs of the truth of his humanity and not merely regarding the most perfect example of a human life that has afforded us in history, but are contemplating the atoning work of a Savior. That in this example of Jesus, we see one who is just like us and could literally die for us. See, Jesus came as our representative. Jesus understands our emotional crisis. Jesus understands the aspects of the way we feel. Jesus is the one who truly understands you. What we see in our text is we see Jesus reaching towards Jerusalem. If you go back to chapter 9 of Luke, you see that Jesus had set his eyes on Jerusalem. His goal all along had been to reach Jerusalem. This major event of actually arriving brought with it an abundance of emotion. Just like it does for us. Any major event brings on a major amount of emotion. After all, life is full of emotion, isn't it? Right now, my oldest is preparing to graduate. You need to be careful when you talk to Amanda and I because you never know what emotional place we're at. For example, there will be times of great joy as we're thrilled about our son's achievement finishing high school, going on to college. Life is ever before him. The excitement of that, the joy of that. But at the same time, there's deep sadness. As we contemplate, where did time go? On a personal note, every time I look at Noah, I see a curly-haired little boy who walks around this place following me in every room. And yet there's also deep determination. Amanda and I do not want to waste one moment of time. See, in that one event, Noah graduating, we experience joy and sadness and determination. 
and so do you in the events that are before you. You're flooded with emotions, whether it's a wedding day, and you think about all the emotions that are captured in the day of a bride getting ready for her groom, coming down the aisle, the tears of joy, the tears of separation, the anxiety, will everything go right? Or how about the birth of a child and all the emotion that that brings? or a job change, or even retirement. See, friends, these emotions are natural. And that's the point. Jesus, in his humanity, understands us completely. He, he understands us absolutely like no one else can. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 states that he understands us, for it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet, hear this, yet without sin. So yes, Jesus had emotions, but his emotions were never sinful. Praise God for a Savior who gets us and yet is also able to save us. See, unlike Jesus, who is always perfect in his joy, sadness, and determination, we're not. There's times that our joy is wrong or misplaced. There's times that our sadness is more focused on ourselves than maybe where it should be. There's times that we're less than determined than we're supposed to be. Yet as a perfect Savior, Christ has entered this world and experienced all that we have experienced so that he could die for us. That's exactly what our text is showing us. It not only shows us the emotions of our lives and captures that, but it actually shows us in detail the emotional life of Christ. As I already stated, Jesus is now approaching Jerusalem the long-awaited event. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says he set his face to Jerusalem. Since chapter 9 of Luke, we've been going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, seeing that Jesus' eyes were fixed on his death. But now, just before he enters Jerusalem, Luke stops. It seems absolutely absurd. He stops. Go just a little bit further. Take a few more steps. Enter Jerusalem. You finally have arrived. But he stops. And Luke tells us a very detailed story in verses 28 through 35 of Jesus sending two of his disciples to go get a colt and untie it and bring it to him. Why? Because this is a story about the triumphal entry. Because this is a story of joy. This is a story of completion. And we understand that there was great excitement as they went to go get the cult. Everyone knew in their minds what was about to take place. For Jesus was bringing great joy to the multitudes as he, the promised one, the healer of the people, would now ride on the donkey and into the city. For us, we think, what's the big deal? Maybe he just got tired. Maybe he just decided the last few steps he, he couldn't make. No, Jesus was fulfilling Scripture. Back in the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, we read this. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. On the foal of a donkey. You can imagine the excitement as they bring the animal towards Jesus. They place their cloaks upon him and they see Jesus take his seat upon the animal. The crowds begin to cheer. Again, fulfilling scripture as they sing the praises of their king. They're actually singing a psalm. Psalm 118, verse 26, where they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They shout, they sing, they praise. A joyous, triumphal entry. In the midst of all this, the religious leaders demand that he stop the celebration. In the midst of all this, the religious leaders demand that he stop the celebration. Look at verse 39. They're demanding it. But notice Jesus' response in verse 40, that if the people stop, the rocks will cry out. Praise God. They cannot stop this celebration. Jesus says, even if the mouths of the people stop, the rocks will cry out. This is a joyous occasion. You can imagine the smile upon Jesus' face. For this was true joy. Not a joy polluted by pride as we often experience when someone gives us praise. No, this is perfect and right joy. For Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and he is being celebrated and his celebration is perfect and it's fitting because of who he is. So B.B. Warfield again offers us some insight. He explains that he came as a conqueror with the gladness of the imminent victory in his heart. For the joy set before him, he was able to enter the cross despising the shame. Jesus was able to fulfill what he did with joy because he knew his purpose. After all, we're told when Jesus first came that he would bring good tidings of great joy. Joy. Jesus' ministry was marked by joy. Joy as people received their sight. Joy as the dead came back to life. Jesus' ministry of the cross was even one of joy. Listen to Jesus' own words in John chapter 17, verse 13. He says, but now I come to you, Father, and to these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy, my joy, fulfilled in them. Jesus was preparing to die. His prayer was a prayer as he prepared to make atonement and he prayed for joy. And here they were celebrating. Friends, this joy that they were experiencing was not the shallow joy that often falls upon the fallen world. No, this joy was perfect joy because of who it was celebrating the one who would set captives free. And yet, right in the midst of all this, right upon entering the city, Luke now mixes celebration with anguish. It's almost like a roller coaster ride. What is he up to? What is he doing? Luke, pause for a moment. Let's, let's just take a breather. 
But why do we go from a party to a funeral? But he does. Picking up at verse 41 all the way to verse 44, we see Jesus weep over the city. Sadness. Perfect sadness. Righteous sadness. See, upon reaching Jerusalem, Jesus weeps. Why does Jesus weep? He knows their misunderstanding. He knows their disbelief. They saw him merely as a political Messiah coming to defeat Rome. And so he tells them of their future, the destruction of the temple. He's speaking forward to 70 AD when the temple will be nothing but rubble. Listen to what he says in Luke 19, 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children and within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because of your disbelief. Because of the hardness of your heart. See, in Jesus' first advent, he did not come to defeat Rome. He came to defeat the bigger enemy of sin and death. And Jesus there weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He's saddened by their disbelief and the consequences this will bring. The truth of the matter is, friends, how often are we truly sad for others? How often do we truly weep righteously? So often our own weeping is simply focused on ourselves. Jesus wasn't crying because he was going to the cross. Jesus was weeping over those who did not believe. Jesus was weeping over the consequence of the hardness of their hearts. B.B. Warfield again picks this up well when he says, the sight of suffering drew tears from, their, from his eyes. Obstinate unbelief convulsed him with uncontrollable grief, perfect righteous grief as he cried and wept for the hardness of men's hearts. And then yet again, Luke takes yet another turn, another turn in the roller coaster. After entering the city, Luke shows Jesus now immediately entering the temple. To the untrained eye, you think, okay, this was just how it played out. But Luke is intentionally skipping two major events. Luke is skipping the night spent in Bethany. Luke is skipping the cursing of the fig tree, which are written in Matthew and Mark. He's taking us on an emotional roller coaster to show us the heart of our Savior. Luke has Jesus, the king, headed right to the temple. Luke has Jesus showing us yet another emotion, an emotion of determination. And why? Because of the pilgrims who've traveled on Passover. The temple was filled. Some estimates say that the population of Jerusalem went from 80,000 to 200,000 during Passover as all the Jews would come and gather to attend. And why does Jesus show determination now? Because he sees the pilgrims being ripped off by the money changers and the sheep stealers. One commentator gives an awful example. 
Imagine being a, a, a sheep farmer or having your perfect little lamb that you've inspected and you say, this is a good one. This is the one we'll take to sacrifice at the temple. And so you throw it upon your neck and you make the journey from your small town all the way to Jerusalem. And as you bring that lamb to be sacrificed for your family, it's inspected by the priest who intentionally seeks a way to find a flaw. And upon seeing a flaw says, you know, we can't let you sacrifice it, but we can buy it off of you. And so paying you less than what the sheep is worth, you're now given a lump of money that you need to go to the table of, uh, for money changers so that you can get temple currency, where again you're ripped off. And by the time you get enough of the money together to go and buy a perfect sheep, you discover you're probably just buying the sheep that you brought in the first place. Do you see the wickedness of men's hearts? Do you see what Jesus was standing against in his determination? And yet, friends, listen to the words of Jesus in verse 46. He says, it is written, my house. Notice the pronoun, my My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Friends, this isn't the first time that Jesus will take action against the money changers and the sheep stealers. In fact, this is the second time. Earlier in John, John chapter 2, verse 17, we're told that Jesus was filled with zeal as he flipped over tables. This zeal that Jesus had was a zeal for the house of the Lord. This zeal that Jesus had was a, was a zeal for the, for the honoring of the Father. I like what Dale Ralph Davis says. He says he was reclaiming the Father's house for its intended purpose, which was the worship of God. Zeal was burning jealously in his heart, righteously for the holiness and the worship of God. And our friend, B.B. Forfield, yet speaks again. He says his love to the Father was the source of his obedience. His love for the Father. See, Jesus had pure joy, pure sadness, and pure determination as he entered Jerusalem. And church, what does that mean for you and me? It means we have a Savior who's experienced all those same emotions, but without sin, so he could die for you. And why did he do this? So that he could take and make your worship perfect. Friends, don't miss this this morning. Not only is our emotion found in this text, and not only is our emotion found in life, our emotion is found in worship. I want you to think about that statement for a minute. Motion found in our worship. Yes. As we've seen Jesus, our Savior, express his emotion in the purest form to fulfill the Father's purpose, it is only appropriate that our lives are filled with the emotion of our Lord as given by his word for his glory. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean that in our worship, we need to experience true sadness over sin. I mean that in our worship, we need to experience true joy in a Savior who has come. It means that we need to experience in our worship true determination to live with zeal for his honor and his glory. Friends, let me just say 
This is why we have different aspects in our liturgy. This is why in our liturgy, our form of worship in this church, we're confronted with the law so that we will mourn over sin. It's not just so we can sit back and hear God's word read, but so that our hearts would break over our sin. That's why we're led in a prayer of confession and that we're given an assurance of pardon because of who Christ is. That's why we can celebrate, because of the grace of the coming Savior who did come and did die and now lives and we live because of him. But that's also why in our liturgy we seek determination to live lives out of gratitude. Why we commit ourselves to be changed and live for him and to glorify him. Friends, note that our worship should seek to share the various emotions as they are connected to the gospel, as they are pictured in the emotional life of our Lord. Anything less is missing the target. Let me say this, this is nothing new. Our liturgy isn't some crafty way that we've sat back and thought. No, we're copying the historic foundation and pattern that has been sent by the historic church since its foundation. Joy, sadness, determination, gratitude. But friends, it's not just in liturgies. We actually see this in the architecture and worship. If we all loaded in the church vans, which we'd need more church vans, But if we did, we drove down to Detroit and we walked into some of those old buildings, what would we discover? Well, we would discover two things. First of all, modernism has changed the way a church looks. Modernism has given a sense of mere practicality, do what works. But in the old days, they didn't just simply do what works. The old churches were built with purpose and intentionality. What were some of those purposes? Well, they wanted you to see the bigness of God. And they wanted you to see the smallness of man. That's why they had high ceilings and large open spaces. They wanted you to see the beauty of God's grace gifted towards man in the ways that we were able to display craftsmanship and detail. The stonework, the stained glass, the beauty that brings in. There's also a a sense of community and service that we would find as we look at the old classrooms and the nurseries and the fellowship halls, places for people to gather and to serve and to be together. What am I getting at? The point is simple. Our worship is proper when it displays different emotions of the gospel. Just as our Savior did. He experienced joy and sadness and determination. If we had all those feelings and all those feelings are to be appropriate, they must be centered on Christ. Friends, if it's okay for me to have all of those mixed emotions for my son whom I love, how much more is it appropriate for me to have those emotions for my creator, sustainer, and redeemer? The scriptures are filled with a variety of emotions. In Exodus chapter 15, after the Lord rescued the people of Israel from the Egyptians, what, did he, what happened? Miriam took her tambourine and she started singing. And guess what? All the ladies joined in. But understand this. It wasn't just about joy and gladness that were to be expressed. It was also about grief and anguish. The psalmist in Psalm 5.1 says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Worship 
has both joy and sadness, but it also has determination. In James chapter 1, we read, be doers of the word and not hearers only. One of the parts of history that I like to study is the Great Awakening. As you look at the time period of Jonathan Edwards, some things are written in great journals as people experience the awakening and revival that was occurring in their hearts because of the word being preached, a word they hadn't heard in a long time. Over some of those reactions, well, some wept over their sin. Others rejoiced in knowing their Savior. Still others were determined to go live differently under the power of Christ. And some even admit to experiencing all three under the same sermon. What am I getting at? I'm getting at worship should not be mere stoicism. Worship should not be mere stoicism. We were made with emotions, and yes, our emotions must be held in check according to the word of God. We must always remember that we have fallen in Adam. We said that this morning in our prayer. Even our emotions have been affected by the fall. But at the same time, friends, our Lord expressed emotions sinlessly. He expressed true joy, honest sadness, faithful determination, and so should we. But how? Is it something we conjure up in ourselves? No. If we're to mirror the emotional life of our Lord, it must be by the power of his spirit. Friends, Jesus didn't just come to model proper emotions. He has empowered them through his Holy Spirit. Friends, that's why the Puritans prayed for the gift of tears. Do you hear that? They prayed to cry They prayed to weep over their sin. And so should we. Friends, may we all seek the emotional life of our Lord as we seek to worship God properly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage where we see the emotional reaction of Christ on three levels, we see his joy We see his sadness and we see his determination. God may be evident in our own lives of our need for true sadness and brokenness over sin. May we not roll past that. Lord, for some of us, we need to bake in that sadness. May your law become ever more real to us. May we see the weight of sin, the hatred you have for sin, the call for holiness. Lord, may we start to hate what you hate and love what you love. God, for others of us, we need to be reminded of the grace and the forgiveness that's found in Christ. May we truly bask in the good news that those who were buried with him in death are now alive with him in the resurrection. May we understand that we are overcomers because of what Christ has provided. And may we truly see that it is 100% by grace, not earned. Lord, for others of us, may we begin to live out determined lives. May we be filled with zeal for your purposes, for your worship. May we no longer be satisfied with giving you less than the best. God, may our whole lives be affected. May we truly be passionate for you. May we love you. May we pursue you. May we be hungry for you. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. And God's people said, This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.